Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The you're an imposter mantra is a beautiful, oft-repeated phrase from one's inner critic. But there are a lot of other phrases that the inner critic uses. So it's kind of a subset of this self-loathing that goes on. And I think you, you correctly linked it to the kind of merging of sense of self and self-worth with uh, work. But I would, I would argue it's even deeper. It's, it's merging a sense of self and a sense of self-worth with almost anything that's extrinsic to this meat bag called me. Uh, One of the more profound teachings from Buddhism is that um, it basically goes like this. You are lovable. You are worthy. Not because of anything that you have done, but simply because you exist. And to my mind, that flies in the face of almost every Western uh, uh, philosophical tradition that I was ever raised with, mm-hmm. which was that salvation and everlasting peace, a kind of equanimity, that I am okay. I suffer and I'm okay. I'm in pain and I'm okay. I'm happy and I'm okay. I'm sad and I'm okay. That kind of equanimity is only available to us in the hereafter and only available to people who either have been chosen, preordained by God or someone lucky enough to have figured out what the right things to do are. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Jerry, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really an honor and pleasure to be here. Well, it is really, really cool to have you here. Um, I came across your work by uh, way of the Reboot podcast, which uh, I found when I was going through a particularly difficult time myself. And, uh, you know, what really drew me into your work was the fact that you were willing to go to places in conversations that I think we avoid for uh, we've avoided for far too long. You're willing to explore the darker subjects of human nature um, and some of the things that I, I think we need to talk about, but we're afraid to talk about. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, for our listeners who may not know about your work and who you are, can you give us a, a bit of background on yourself, your journey, and everything that has led you up to everything you're doing at Reboot? You said we only have an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> I also said you could talk for as long as you wanted. I know, I know. So now the listeners are warned. Um, so uh, being a coach, so I'm the CEO of Reboot, Reboot.io. And uh, Reboot is first and foremost a coaching company, but we uh, have really expanded and provide leadership and management training and development, performance reviews, the podcast, 
uh, peer support groups, boot camps, workshops, and so on and so on. We've got a book we're working on, a couple of other things. Reboot, though, is really the latest iteration of a coaching practice that goes back 10 years now. And I became a coach uh, after a long career as a venture capitalist. Uh, my most famous partner is a somewhat unheard of, uh, unknown venture capitalist named Fred Wilson. Um, I taught him everything he fucking knows. God damn. <laughs> and um, prior to that, I was a, uh, 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 a reporter for about 10 years, a reporter and magazine editor. And then I also developed an internet service called TechWeb which I developed in 1994. And, Srini, from your picture, I see a little bit of gray, but I'm going to guess <laughs> you were probably in middle school. Uh, when I think I was just starting high school, so close. All uh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. So if you see ads on the Internet, it's my fault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as if you can't see ads on the Internet. Um, and so I've had this sort of varied career um, I've been a teacher, a college professor. I've I've uh, I've been an active um, participant in nonprofit work. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a twenty three year twenty three year veteran of psychoanalysis. Um, so, and all of that shows up in my coaching practice. So that's that's how I got there. That and the fact that I was born in Brooklyn and I'm a Yankee fan. And if you got a problem with that, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, you mentioned you're born in Brooklyn. Uh, I actually like to do something with a lot of people that is uncommon, I think, in interviews. I like to look back at people's childhoods and, and sort of early influences and things in their life that ultimately led them down the path that they ended up going, like the, you know, mentors, influences, people. I mean, what were the significant experiences in your life that ultimately put you on this path? Yeah, we're really serious. Do you have an hour? Um <laughs> I would say that it was a combination of factors, I guess, which would be true for everybody, um, some of which were intensely painful, uh, some of which were, um, many of which were intensely painful, um, many of which were incredibly enlivening. Um, so uh, the things that come to mind include... Growing up uh, incredibly poor, um, worrying about that a lot, being the sixth child of seven kids in, a, in the household, having a mother who struggled with mental illness, having a father who was an alcoholic, um, uh, growing up. Uh, in an economically deprived neighborhood where there was an incredible amount of violence, to um, you know, teachers, mostly teachers come to mind, especially in the early years, people who just sort of reached in and sort of touched my life in a very profound and different way. Mr. Securo in seventh grade, my science teacher, or you know, teachers in high school or a college professor who kept me, who came up with a scholarship at the very uh, moment I needed it in order to not drop out of Queens College, City University in New York, because I couldn't afford to pay the rent and I couldn't afford to pay tuition. Um, 
So it's a wide variety of experiences. I had uh, an interesting work mentor starting around age 15, age 16, who was uh, himself only a sixth grade graduate. Uh, he was Basque, and he was a former merchant marine who uh, ran a locker repair company that I worked for during the summers. So all of these influences uh, combined uh, kind of create the the kind of nutty person that I am. So you've had sort of uh, uh, like a, a pretty prolific career and, and, you know, by most external measures, one that's been very successful. Uh, the question that raises for me when I hear sort of the backstory behind this is, why do you think that certain people are able to overcome environments like that uh, and achieve the results that you have in your life. And why is it that people who often don't have anywhere near the level of challenges or obstacles to overcome don't even come close to what you have in your results, which I realize we could spend another hour just on that. A little. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to resist talking about people who quote unquote, haven't had the success that I had because uh, honestly, if we had the video going, you'd see me bristle a little bit with that. Um, uh, because I don't know their story. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm just going to respond from my story. How's that? Yeah, that's fair. Um, and um, I bristled because what flashed through my mind is, is uh, being 38 and not feeling like a success and feeling like uh, I really needed to kill myself. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking metaphorically. I mean, that was a true set of feelings. And um, so I think the question, the answer to your question, which is a profound question, which is, which goes to the heart of a notion of resiliency. It goes to the heart of a question of the capacity to, to bounce back, if you will, to, to, um, to recover. Um, because to be clear, I think we've all got tough stories. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't ask the questions that you ask if you weren't, if you didn't have a story yourself. Oh yeah. And, and someday I'll get you on my podcast and I'll get you your story out of you. But, um, I think, I think for me, Whatever resiliency I have managed to develop, I think has come from an incredible group of wise elders who they themselves have been brave enough to share their stories, either directly with me or through their writing mm-hmm. or their speaking. And, allowed, and I allowed myself to imagine the possibility that if such and such a thing could happen to them, then perhaps I could recover as well. So, for example, um, and, I, and I often speak of my friend Parker Palmer, I remember at 38 reading of his struggles with depression in a moment in my life when the depression made me feel as if I was completely helpless and that, that this was the only way that I was going to be for whatever time on earth I had left. And of course, that wasn't the truth, but that's what it felt like. 
And to know that there was this man whose writing blew me away and made me cry and laugh at the same time. Or as another friend just recently put it, it feels like I'm taking a drink from a deep well of soul every time I read him. To know that he overcame depression gave me the sensation that it was possible. And to to speak about my philosophical beliefs for a moment, the promise of Buddhism is not eternal salvation. The promise of Buddhism is alleviation of suffering in this lifetime. And as having been raised a Catholic and rejected that, and having become a Marxist for a while, before I was a venture capitalist, I really resonated with the wish to alleviate suffering, mine and everyone else's. And, you know, I just speak to those two belief systems and writers and authors and people and elders who, in effect, gave me a hand. You know, of course, there's my therapist, there's my current Buddhist teacher, Sharon Salzberg, and her incredible book, Faith, which was another book that I cried my way through, or Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart. So it's a long-winded response to a very complex question, but I think that whatever capacity of resiliency I've developed, I've developed by watching others and developing a little bit of faith. You know, my sister once said to me, my sister Anne, one of my sisters, we were talking about some stuff going on in the family, and she said, you know, the difference between you and a lot of other folks, Jerry, is that you actually have the faith that change is possible. And uh, I didn't always, Mm -hmm. but I do now. Where in the timeline of your career uh, were you when you started feeling like this? Like, you mean the when I sort of really the existential depression yeah. came back? Yeah. Well, um, I spent most of my youth, most of my childhood depressed. Um, there were times in which it was better than other times, but I see now through the lens of adulthood that, uh, as I like to joke, depression and I are old, old friends. It was acute in my late teen years, first year of college. There was a suicide attempt after the first semester of college. And having been a parent now of uh, children, I understand the stresses of high school and college from a completely broader perspective. Um, And then, uh, again, I was about, uh, let's see, Fred and I started Flatiron Partners in 96. I'd become a venture capitalist in 94. Um, And by 2000, 2001, um, I had been in therapy for a number of years. Uh, I re-entered therapy in 1992. Um, But uh, the the anxiety and the depression was becoming uh, almost unbearable. And by the spring of 2001, I knew, I mean, it was the, it was the central reason why I, uh, Fred and I, 
from it was the central reason for me why Fred and I um, ended the Flatiron Partners partnership um, between he and I. We remained very, very close friends. Um, and then I took a job with J.P. Morgan, and, and I uh, was still miserable. In fact, I was worse. And by February 2002, I was 38. Um, that's when I really hit a crisis point. Um, and by the end of 2002, I left the business. I left J.P. Morgan. And uh, as I often say, I, I kind of mimicked the Buddha. I went and sit on, sat under the Bodhi tree and said, what the fuck is going on with my life? And in some ways, it was the first time in my life that I actually looked at uh, the deeper issues within me. So the reason I asked the, the question about the timeline of it is that it seems like such an odd paradox that you could be at what appears to be the pinnacle of a career. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in the early days of the internet. I was in Berkeley while you and Fred were basically making me Inventing think. this shit. Yeah, yeah. You, you literally were inventing this shit and making me think that I was going to get out of Berkeley and have some uh, cushy dot com job. And I graduated December 2001. So you know how that story ends probably yeah, better yeah. than I do. Yeah. Um, but it's, it just seems like such an odd paradox to me. And I just, you know, I can't help but ask you what uh, myths that need to need to be dispelled about a moment of arrival yeah. that we might have. Uh, uh -huh. as somebody listening, because I think, okay, wait a minute, you guys were at yeah. Flatiron, you guys invented the internet, you must have been minted. Yeah, yeah, well, um, and, 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 and the whole invented the internet thing is a, is a joke. I, I play on my kids all the time. It's like, yeah. I don't want to go shopping. That's why I invented the internet. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, you, you, you raise a good point. The, the, the analogy I often think of, or, or, or the, the quote I often think of, is something I read a few years later in a book called Listening to Midlife by, by uh, Mark Gerzon. And I believe he was quoting um, Buzz Aldrin, who suffered a depression after uh, orbiting the Earth and becoming the first human to or orbit the Earth. And he's, he supposedly said, when you've seen the Earth from the vantage point of the moon, what else is there? So, so there was, a, there was a, a quality of that, which was this profound ennui uh, that set in, that said, okay, I've used the chase, the pursuit, fame, or money. And for me, it was about financial security, right? Mm -hmm. Think about my childhood. Think about the fears that I inherited. I used a chase to define myself for such a long time that when the chase was over, who was I? Uh, so that was a piece of it. There was the profound imposter syndrome, which was the belief that everybody... You know, we would we would get these articles. I remember one article um, written in Women's Wear Daily that wanted to that that wrote about the the fashion choices that Fred and I were making. I mean, how fucking stupid! You know, USA Today once called me to ask me about my opinion about the devaluation of the, the Indonesian currency. I haven't a fucking clue about that, and. All that did was it fostered a sense of, don't these people know I'm just a schmuck from Brooklyn? Right? Uh, you know, someone's going to find out about it. 
And then, as I later really came to understand that the roots of those feelings, the roots of the imposter syndrome, the roots of the kind of ennui of who am I if I don't have the chase, actually led all the way back into my childhood to a kind of not completely well-formed sense of self. And when the mass no longer were sufficient, I kind of, I just had to deal with the fact that everything just crumbled and fell apart. And, you know, in Buddhism, I, I remember years later, I met Pema Chodron. And she became you know, a close teacher and, and, and something of a friend. And I was talking to her about my coaching practice and I said, you know, the thing about my clients is that a lot of times they walk in and their whole sense of self is just completely annihilated. And there's like two second pause and she says, oh, oh, you mean in a bad way? <laughs> because in Buddhism, of course, the, the annihilation of the self is, or the, pre, or, or the conception of the self is, a, is an important means to... Uh, the liberation. So, here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Anyway, did I hope I answered your oh, yeah. question? Yeah, yeah. It, and of course, it raises more questions uh, and, and a bit of commentary. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, I remember uh, hearing the very end of Sam Altman's uh, lecture series at Stanford, where he said that this whole piece of, of managing your psychology, he said, as you get more successful, it gets worse because yeah. the highs get higher and the lows get lower. And you know, I think that I, I experienced sort of a, a, a similar experience of, of you know an extreme high of uh, you know national media attention and mm-hmm. you know a lot of success with projects and then suddenly it was all over and it it kind of sent me into a spiral of of despair um but the imposter syndrome uh it's funny because i'm about to give a talk so this is fresh on my mind and it's one of the things i'm going to be opening the the talk with i have this feeling that every one of us feels that regardless of whether we're standing on stage writing books with a publisher or building projects that we're hoping somebody will hear about. And I feel like because of that, our worth and our work end up getting tied together. And I'm wondering how you start to uncouple those things. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say not everyone feels it. Sociopaths and psychopaths don't. Fair enough. That's that's (laughs) a joke. Um, I think that that, uh, I don't think everyone feels it to the same extent or the same intensity. And I think that there are times when we feel it more than the other feeling. And, you know, there's, there are corollary feelings to this, you know, we'll, we'll call it the inner critic. We'll call it as, you know, the, you're an imposter mantra is a beautiful, oft repeated phrase from one's inner critic. But there are a lot of other phrases that the inner critic uses. So it's kind of a subset of this self-loathing that goes on. And I think you, you correctly linked it to the kind of merging of sense of self and self-worth with uh, work. But I would, I would argue it's even deeper. It's, it's merging a sense of self and a sense of self-worth with almost anything that's extrinsic to this meat bag called me. Mm. Um, uh, one of the more profound teachings from Buddhism is that um, it basically goes like this. You are lovable. You are worthy. Not because of anything that you have done, but simply because you exist. And to my mind, that flies in the face of almost every Western uh, uh, philosophical tradition that I was ever raised with, mm-hmm. which was that salvation and uh, everlasting peace, a kind of equanimity, that I am okay. I suffer and I'm okay. I'm in pain and I'm okay. I'm happy and I'm okay. I'm sad and I'm okay. That kind of equanimity is only available to us in the hereafter and only available to people who either have been chosen, preordained by God or someone lucky enough to have figured out what the right things to do are. 
And so you end up spending all of this time in pursuit of doing the right thing, smelling the right way, eating the right foods, um, saying the right words, having the right job, having the right career. The list is fucking endless. And in a sense, I think our, our capitalist system is dependent upon us feeling that way so that we buy more, we participate more, we consume more, in a sense, to close the hole in our chest of worthlessness. It's an awful, awful merry-go-round. And uh, so... I'll answer your question finally. How do we get off the fucking merry-go-round? Yeah. Um, it sounds self-indulgent and narcissistic to a westernized ear, but it's self-love. Mm. You can't, you know, my friend Sharon is writing a book. I guess I can talk a little bit about it. Real Love. Sharon Salzberg, my teacher. It's a follow-on to some of her other books, Real Happiness and Real Happiness at Work. And I was reading a first draft of it the other day, and, and she brilliantly starts with the notion of self-love. How can you be in relationship with someone if you don't know who you are and you can't love yourself? And I don't mean narcissistically, self-absorbedly lo- love oneself or pay attention to oneself, as one might say when one is depressed. I mean genuinely like who you are. And uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, and I, and I apologize for, for keep reaching back to Buddhism, but you can tell how important it is to my life. There's a meditation called loving kindness meditation that, that the mantra of which is something called the four immeasurables. And it's may all beings enjoy happiness in the cause of happiness. May they be free of suffering in the cause of suffering. May they not be separated from the great happiness devoid of suffering. May they dwell in the great equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and prejudice. And that version was taught to me by a different teacher. But I like that version. It's very poetic. And, of course, when you do it, you're supposed to think of people like, I don't know, I'll say it, Donald Trump. (laughs) May Donald Trump be happy. That's a hard thing. May Vladimir Putin be happy. May... Bashir, what's his name, from Syria, be happy. May the person I just had a fight with, may the person who just caught me on. So that's hard. So then you circle in, may my parents be happy, may my spouse be happy, may my children be happy, right? That's a little easier. You know what's the hardest part? May I be happy. Mm. That's the hardest part. And... I don't think that we really begin to end the suffering or the violence, either the physical violence in the world or the violence that we experience in the workplace, existential and otherwise, until we can really begin to look deeply at the things that block us from really understanding and loving our own self. So you get a front row seat to a lot of really, really high achieving people and people who have, you know, pretty wild ambitions, yeah. uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, maybe the upper echelon of achievement. Uh, it's, and it's something that I've had to learn to wrestle with because I spend my days talking to people like you. Mm. And I'm really curious, uh, why you think 
that this conversation uh, about the things you and I are talking about is something that we don't discuss so much earlier in life and why it's just now starting to become so prevalent in our culture. I think that we're afraid. I think we're afraid of our own feelings. I think we're, you know, I was talking to, um, to someone just last week where I was helping them with their, it's a very popular blog and podcast and they had this marketing consultant and we, we ended up in this conversation about, um, she was, she was surprised because I was so open about my own feelings and she was a mother of four boys and she's like, I, I wish my boys could be that way. And I said, you know, we live in a society where, um, there are all these myths that start getting ingrained in us from a very, very early age. Here's a myth. Uh, and I heard this one all the time when I was a kid. You're too sensitive. Well, fuck you. The fact that I cry and that I feel, that's a goddamn superpower. You know, and I say this because until we teach our children, not only that it's okay to have feelings, but, but how to work with those feelings, how to work with the experience of being human, we are going to raise, continue to raise adults who don't know what to do with their suffering. And as my friend Parker says, violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. Sometimes it's violence to self. You think about a young woman who has, uh, you know, a malformed body image. That's a violence, right? Or you look at, you know, you know, a young man who, who, who hits his boyfriend or his girlfriend. That's violence. Or... You know, a young 18-year-old like me who, who struggles with suicidal thoughts, that's violence. To, to adult leaders who unfortunately have a tremendous amount of power and can throw armies around the world because they don't know what to do with suffering. So I think that the work, and I don't know that we'll ever achieve this. I think it just becomes the practice. The practice is how do we raise children's children such that the, 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 the storm of emotions that define our humanity, anxiety, fear, guilt, anger, joy, happiness, love, compassion, this, this wide variety of feelings is accepted and welcomed and worked with and used for the superpower that it is. If we can do that, then I think what we do is we end up raising a generation of adults who don't necessarily have to go through what previous generations have gone through. Um, and then to your point about whether or not it's more prevalent now, I, I don't know. I, I do know this, and I'm pleased about this. Some of us, you know, my friend Brad Feld, for example, mm -hmm. um, have made a point of using our elderhood, and you can't see me, but my hair is gray and white, have used our elderhood and our 
position to, in effect, not give a shit anymore. <laughs> and in doing so, we're able to say things like, yeah, I suffer from depression, or yeah, it's a struggle. And, and in my experience, that creates this uh, community that allows someone else to, who's suffering to raise their hand and say, man, this startup stuff, this is hard. This is really hard. And not everybody is Mark Zuckerberg or Travis Kalanick or, you know, whoever the latest poster child is. In fact, that's less than 1% of the entrepreneurs out there. And in that recognition, there's community. And in that community is our saving and our grace and our humanity and our laughter and our love and the resiliency that you spoke about before. Well, um, I think that makes a perfect setup to talk about <clears throat> what I want to talk about next. You mentioned that you're a reporter, you're a teacher, all these sort of perspectives on the world and in work. I'm curious how those perspectives and the experience that you brought shaped the work that you did as a venture capitalist in Union Square and, you know, shaped how you chose the people that you chose to invest in. And, and what, you know, what were the common threads that you saw in them that enabled them to thrive? Which, Ooh. again, another question that probably we could spend an hour on. Hmm. Well, I think the common denominator behind really every work iteration I've ever had actually even goes back to childhood. And that is, I have been insatiably curious. I have been a voracious reader. I have journaled almost daily since I was 13. So at times intensely self-absorbed um, and the curiosity and uh, about the world has led me to have lots and lots of conversations uh, you know what popped into my mind is a funny little story from when I was in eighth grade at a Catholic school in Brooklyn where I got into trouble with my English teacher because I was asserting, and I'm still correct about this, by the way, that Christ, in his essence, was a Marxist. Well, but you didn't want to say that in Catholic school. So I was sent to the pastor's office. And I proceeded to have a whole series of conversations with him that were enlightening for me, that helped me grow. And, you know, when I became a reporter, I would have conversations when I was an investor and actively investing, the number one tool I would use to, to, in due diligence were conversations. Um, when I was a board member, and more often than not was the conciliary on the board, the one that the CEO turned to, it was through conversation. It was through authentic presence. It was through, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why do you really want to do this company? Like, I get your pitch. But why you? Why now? Why this company? And the truth is, it just made me fascinated to ask this question. You know, I know you, you've had Seth Godin on the show, and mm -hmm. Seth was the first um, CEO that Fred and I backed in Flatiron Partners. So we've known him a long, long time. And Seth, the person, 
was always much more interesting than Yoyodyne, the company. Yoyodyne, the company, was a great little company. Don't get me wrong. It's great. But look at what Seth has done since Yoyodyne. You know, it's like, it's an honor. It was always an honor and a privilege. I mean, you said to, to find people like this. I, I didn't ever felt like I was finding people. I always felt like they were finding me. And I was like lucky because I got to sit and have conversations with Seth Godin about the future of marketing before he was Seth Godin, the action figure. <laughs> you know? So did that answer your question? I don't it know does. It uh, raises a couple more questions. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've actually you know, read books by Seth where he writes about you and Fred mm-hmm. um, and this ability of learning to see things. Uh, so two questions come from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is that this capacity that uh, people have to become Seth Godin-like or what Seth would say remarkable. Do you think that everybody has that and if so how do they tap into it and then the other question uh is this whole idea of learning to see it and you know kind of how you were able to develop the worldview that you did that Mm -hmm. enabled the success that you had and then of course i have one third question to go with that which is what are the lessons that you took away from working with somebody like fred Mm. so um the first question is easy to answer i don't know (laughs) I really don't know if everybody has, has a capacity to see. I think that's a brilliant phrasing. Um, I will tell you that, you know, as, as, I, as I answer your question, I'm staring at one of my many bookshelves. And I'm looking right now at three books that just happen to be right next to each other. Primo Levi's. A Life, or not Primo Levi, Ian Thompson's biography of Primo Levi, right next to a collection of poetry by Juno Barnes called Nightwood, which is right next to a book called The Heart Aroused by David White, the subtitle of which is Poetry and the Preservation of Soul in Corporate America. And squished in there is a book called The Birth of the People's Republic of Antarctica, a brilliant novel that's unfortunately out of print. I look at that and I laugh because it's so eclectic. Um, I think that that my whatever capacity to see that I have developed over time has come from standing on the shoulders of giants, writers who have come before me, who said to me, and to the world. There's a whole world out there. And, uh, you know, if there's any one thing that that sort of defined me more than anything else, it was the the fact that I was an English major and a film minor. Uh, And studied philosophy for two years. So, what was your third question? <laughs> what did you learn from, uh, from working Fred. so closely with somebody like Fred? Um, well, at, at the surface, Fred is a brilliant. Fred is brilliant. 
And Fred is, Fred taught me more uh, about the venture capital business. Fred has, you know, the old line is a perfect, appropriate. Fred has forgotten more about the venture capital business than most people understand. But that's not the thing that he taught me more than anything else. Fred has an integrity about him that um, sometimes gets him in trouble. But there's a commitment to doing the right thing. And when I say sometimes gets him in trouble, I'm remembering times when he would yell and scream and blow up. He doesn't do that so much anymore. But he has a commitment to doing the right thing that is profound and everlasting. And I think it's one of his most beloved qualities. And it's one that I still think of often. You know, he, he has a fearlessness about him in terms of speaking. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, he's okay with speaking his mind now because look at how successful he was. But the truth is he was always that way. <laughs> he was always that way. And uh, it's yet another thing that I admire about him. So I want to talk briefly uh, about money and wealth, uh, mainly because it's been a, a personal curiosity of mine, something that I've been asking a lot of people, especially as I've had people like you. I've had uh, the good fortune to talk to people who have you know, accumulated enough wealth that you know, it, money has ceased to be an important issue in their life. And, you know, having grown up poor, having amassed wealth, um, having been up close and personal to so many people who have, I'm really, really curious um, how your internal narrative around money has started to change because of it, how it changes ours. And then, of course, how that ties into this whole idea of our psychological well-being. Well, I I think it links back to this notion that we were talking about before about resiliency and and not necessarily taking your sense of self-worth from an extrinsic factor. So, you know, one of the conundrums that people don't understand is that some people will often believe that that, um, attaining a certain amount of financial success by default creates... uh, happiness or equanimity. And of course, there's so many counterexamples to that, I still wonder why that myth exists, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, it's, it is something, and it's something that we hold on to. I think so, so one, of the, one of the things to understand is that um, it doesn't do what we think it's going to do. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't suck, Necessarily, but it can. But it doesn't. It doesn't create. It doesn't eliminate the ever-present anxiety or the hole in your chest of of worthlessness. In fact, it, as Sam Altman was pointing out, it, it can exacerbate that. It can create a sense of worthlessness. You know, uh, I didn't deserve this. I was just lucky, or you know, um, you know, this is just a, a byproduct of of lucky genetics. Um, you know, uh, I'm a privileged white male in, in modern society. I mean, that and alone, you know, what, what's Warren Buffett's line? You know, the genetic lottery. I won the genetic lottery that way. So there's that quality to it. But, uh, but I think the most important thing to understand is that um, it's a tool. And 
like another tool that has a lot of emotional and, and energy around it, fire, right? Fire is a tool. Fire can be used for good or it can be used for ill. What you do and how you do and how you relate to it is far more important than the essence of the thing itself. You know, my favorite explication of this um, is to correct the misgiving, the, the misunderstanding of the famous quote, love, love is the root of, uh, money is the root of all evil. St. Paul did not write that. What St. Paul wrote was that love of money is the root of all evil. And that, that is a profoundly different interpretation. And, it's, and it still amazes me that that distinction is lost on people. Um, so it's not something to be loved. It's something to be used. It's something to be used with care. Um, and it can do harm and it can do good, just like fire. This has been really, really, really thought-provoking. Uh, which I kind of expected it to be, given oh. what I've heard, uh, you know, in the conversations I've heard with you. So I have one last question for you, which is sure. how we finish all our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's the ability to be authentically themselves. I think uh, uh, the ability... Uh, to just drop in, be real, to lean into that vulnerable space and to do it. I, I laughed as soon as you said that because um, uh, a few of us at Reboot train here locally uh, in Boulder at a boxing gym called the Corner Boxing Gym. And uh, my partner, Allie, trains with a woman named Kirsten. And, and Kirsten once said to her, Allie, from now on, I want you to say, my name is Allie, and I don't give two fucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think that's what makes someone unmistakable, is the ability to say, my name is Jerry, and I don't give two fucks. And oh, by the way, I love, and I care, but I'm not going to let the world and its harsh need, as David White, the poet, says, the world and its harsh need to change you, change me. I'm going to be me. And that's unmistakable. Well, um, I think that makes a, a really beautiful end to our conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your insights and your story with our listeners. Oh, it was a blast. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.